Welcome to week three of our Revelation series. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first of the seven letters from uh, chapter two of Revelation. But before we get there, I want to remind you of our goals. Here's how our goals are going. We want to remove a little bit of the mystique and the mystery of Revelation. It's a collection of things that may be in symbols and categories, language that we don't often use, but it can be understood. Maybe not the details agreed on, but understood. We want to understand the main themes. We're not going to wrestle and argue over the details. I'll give you different perspectives of what different groups of people think. But once we understand the main themes, the goal isn't just to know them. The goal is to live out those main themes. And hopefully as we go through, we'll be able to love other Christians a little better, other Christians who may disagree on how we understand some of that. In other words, we're going to increase our humility and decrease our arrogance a little bit because what the Bible's clear about, we need to be clear about, we need to proclaim, but where other people disagree on some of the details that aren't clearly and regularly taught, we need to give people space to disagree. If you have your Bibles, let's read the letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7, and let's see what uh, Jesus has to say to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested, those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, each week we're going to answer a question or two, kind of big picture before we get to the little picture. So here's one of the questions we're going to start with today. How many of you think that we're living in the last days? How many of you think that? All right, raise your hand. All right, some of you didn't raise your hand. Take five seconds. Tell the person next to you whether you think we're living in the last days or not. Go ahead. Five seconds. Four, three. All right, you don't have to argue with them or beat them into agreement, all right? Well, interestingly, we actually have chapter and verse on that one. And uh, I know I've heard lots of people say, well, we're obviously living in the last days, but I'm not quite sure that when we throw that language around that we mean the same thing the Bible is saying. So let me show you what I mean by way of overview. In Acts chapter 2, that's the day of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit, Jesus has been crucified, rose from the dead, and then he appears. And right after he's taken to heaven, the Holy Spirit's poured on the church. And um, here is what we read in Acts chapter 2. Uh, that's not Acts chapter 2. <laughs> Keep going. There it is, Acts chapter 2. In the last days, now here's what's going on. 
The Holy Spirit's poured on the church, and a lot of the bystanders, they're not sure what's going on. They hear all of these apostles speaking. They're hearing them in their own languages, not in the language, and so they're shaking their heads, and then Peter answers their question and says, we're not drunk. This is what Joel prophesied. In the last days, there it is, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, here's what the Bible says. The last days began with Jesus' first coming. The last days are completed with Christ's second coming. That period of time is the last day. So we are living in the last days. And we've been living in the last days. And what that means is that nothing else has to be done. And so everything's been done that needs to be done. That's what it means to be the last days. Now, that raises a question, then. Well, what should we be doing in the last days? How should we be spending our time and energy? Well, in Acts chapter 1, one chapter before that, um, they gather around Jesus, right? And they ask him, Lord, are you at this time, right? Christ risen from the dead before he goes to heaven. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do all that stuff now? It's promised in the Old Testament. Here's what Jesus says. It's not for you to know times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Don't speculate on the details. Don't worry about and Boy, the church needs to hear some of this, right? Um, they come and say, are you at this time going? It's not for you to know times or dates. And you know what the next verse says? You know Acts 1.8, right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it, don't speculate. Don't get involved in setting dates and making timelines. In the meantime, in the last days, between the first and second coming, live as witnesses. You know, how many times do we know something, but we just don't do it, right? How many of you know, hey, don't raise your hand. How many of you know you should watch your diet and exercise? We know it, we just don't do it, right? How many of you know three things that you could do to make yourself more productive at work? You just don't do it, right? How many of you know two or three things that you could do in your marriage that would make your marriage, your family better? We know, we just don't do it. So what would the message be? Don't worry about dates and speculating on times. Do what you know you should be doing. Living out the gospel in your life and being witnesses to the difference that Jesus has made in you. Well, that's one piece of the overview. Another piece of overview comes in M verse 11 of chapter 1. So we're still kind of doing some overview stuff. Here's what verse 11 says. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now this is going to be chapters 2 and 3, right? The letters to the seven churches. So write on a scroll what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, I think we have a map. We have a map. There we go. Now, uh, the proportions may not be exactly right, but that is Asia Minor. And you'll notice there are the seven churches, and you'll see that they're in order. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. One of those little dots in the bottom left-hand corner, I'm not sure which one because it's not exactly right. One of those little dots is Patmos. 
That's the island that John has been sent to. So he's on one of those little dots. And what does Jesus say? I want you to send a letter, the whole book of Revelation, send it to the seven churches. And so the letter gets sent. And you'll notice if you look at the map, if you were to take a boat, the carrier comes, if you were to take a boat from one of those little dots and you were to land, the first city you'd come to is Ephesus. From Ephesus, you would make the circle. You do the circuit, Smyrna, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and that's where John sends the letter, right? So there you've got the idea. But it's not just that. Look down at verse 20. This is still in chapter 1. We're we're getting to chapter 2. Here's what verse 20 says. Send it to the seven churches, but we've got to understand some of the symbolism here. The mystery of the seven stars that Jesus is holding in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so Jesus in his right hand, a hand of power and authority, he's holding the seven stars of the churches. What are the stars? The angels of the churches. Here's one of the big debate going on, right? The word angel in Greek just means messenger. So one school of thought is, The angels, the messengers to the churches, they're actually the pastors of the churches. So send this letter to the pastors of the churches. Another view is, no, no, no. The word angels never used for a pastor of a church or for a human being. It's used in the Bible to to refer to an angelic messenger. And remember, if this is revelation, God's kind of rolling, moving the curtain back, showing us what's going on. I tend to say, yes, something's going on in the angelic spiritual world here. I'd kind of be more on that side. You can be on whatever side you want. Um, And that doesn't mean we should pray to angels. That doesn't mean we can come up with the org chart for angels, who's higher, who's lower. We don't know all of that. But we do know this. There's a spirit world that exists that we can't see. And we often live like we're oblivious to it. And we live as if it's non-existent. There's a whole spirit world behind what's going on. John, Jesus says, write the letter to the seven angels of the churches. And the lampstands are the churches. I've been thinking a lot about lamps this week. You ever check? You need to check out some lamps this week. There are short lamps and tall lamps, fat lamps and skinny lamps, tall lamps, short, all kinds of lamps, right? But here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what shape the lamp is in. It matters that a lamp holds a bulb that connects it to a power source that can power the bulb so the bulb lights up and lights up the room. That's the purpose of the lamp. You can have whatever size lamp you want. It can be expensive, it can be cheap, it can be ornate, it can be plain, lots of, but without the power source, without the bulb, the lamp is useless, just a piece of furniture. That was true in the Old Testament too. In the temple, right, it would have been dark inside the curtains, there were lampstands. They didn't have electric wires and they didn't have light bulbs. They had wicks and they had oil. And what was the job of the priest? To keep the wicks trimmed, to keep the oil filled so that the light from the lamp could light up the room. Boy, that's a pretty good metaphor for a church, isn't it? It doesn't matter what the size is. It doesn't matter how ornate it is. It doesn't matter whether it's fat or skinny, tall, short, expensive or not. What matters is, is the light of the gospel, the power source of Jesus, energizing that church and lighting up through that church to the community around and to those around. That's what a lamp is for. That's what a church is for. 
A church isn't to make our lives comfortable, to come in and sit in a place, to do these things, do that. No, the purpose of a church is to light up with the light of the gospel so that we can see our own lives and that other people can see what's happening in their lives and find their way to the gospel. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is the power source that lights up. And our main focus needs to be doing that. Lampstands. Well, that really brings us to uh, the church at Ephesus. I'm not sure you've realized, but we know a lot more about the church in Ephesus than we do of the other six churches. In fact, let me just review with you some of the things that we know about the church in Ephesus. We know that Paul traveled there, and you can actually read about that in Acts chapter 19. So the Eagles don't play today, and it's going to be lousy. You can read Acts 19 today. And here's what you discover. Um, it, this is a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of a snide summary, but it's fairly accurate. When Paul would visit a city or a town, he would either cause a revival or a riot. In Ephesus, he did both. You read it. There's a revival. People take, right, it's the place, Ephesus was a city, 250,000 people or so. The temple of Artemis, right, the temple of Diana was there. Lots of religious paganism. Peter, Paul goes and preaches. Lots of people come to Christ. There's a revival. There's also a riot because some of the merchants who are making a really good living selling artifacts of Diana, they begin to say, hey, this whole gospel thing that, that Paul's preaching, that's cutting into my wallet. We need to stop that. A revival and a riot. Oh yeah, not just that. We have a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And you can read that letter. We call it Ephesians. Now here's an interesting thing. And again, you can check this out. When you read the letter to Ephesians, it's a little different than Paul's other letters. It's much more general. Not a lot of specifics mentioned. But Paul spent like three years in Ephesus. If he's writing a letter, don't you think he would have mentioned more people? Don't you think he would have mentioned a lot more details? That's probably because Ephesians was probably a circular letter that was also delivered to these seven churches. That's conjecture, but pretty good evidence. Paul spent three years there. He was pastoring there. Not just that, Paul sent First and Second Timothy to his disciple Timothy who he left in Ephesus to pastor the church when he moved on. And so, so far, Paul was there causing a, riot, a revival and a riot. Paul spent over three years there. He sent Timothy there to continue to pastor. And he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. And when Paul was in Ephesus for the three years, he wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus and he sent it to Corinth. Well, we know a lot about Ephesus, which makes the letter a little more damning, doesn't it? Not just that. John, who I believe wrote Revelation, also went to Ephesus. So think of the teachers and the leaders they had. They had Paul over three years teaching and leading. They had Timothy and John the Apostle spent a fair bit of time in Ephesus before he was sent into Patmos and exiled there. Boy, what a, what a history and legacy that church has, huh? 
I mean, how would you like that in, in the resume of Calvary Church, right? You know, a riot and a revival that Paul started. Timothy's here for a little bit. John comes and stays right for a while. The apostle, what a great start. That's the letter. Well, um, I want you to notice that each of the seven letters follows the same basic format. So you, you, you'll see this over the next couple of weeks. Here's the, I'll tell it to you. I, I was going to put it on a slide, I didn't. It, you can write it down or just remember it. Each of the letters begins with a charge from Jesus. It always begins the same way. John, write a letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. John, write a letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum, Smyrna, right? It begins with a charge. John, do this, write this. But secondly, here's an interesting thing. Secondly, every one of the seven letters refers back to the vision of Jesus from chapter one, every one. And so the letter to Ephesus that we read, what does it say? Here's how it refers back to the vision. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. Now, every one of the seven letters will refer to something different about the vision of Jesus in John 1, but they all refer back to the vision. And you thought we made our pillars up just out of thin air? The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to him. We're only like two, not even two chapters into this book yet. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate author of the letter. Jesus sends John to write the letter. Jesus appears to John in this vision. Jesus dictates the letters in two and three. And we're going to see in chapters four and five, Jesus is the one that walks up to the throne of God, takes the scroll and says, I'll unroll the rest of history. The Bible is a point and a purpose. Revelation is a point and a purpose. Jesus is the point, and the purpose is to lead us to him. And whatever we do with the details that follow, it better keep Jesus in the center, and it better make sure that it's flowing from him and everything to him, because that's the point of the scripture, and that's the point of this book as well. Well, so what does it mean in the description, or if the, if the outline here is kind of authority, address, and antidote, that, that's what we're going to look at. Here's the authority. These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus has authority, right? He holds the stars, the seven stars. He holds the angels in his hand. Those churches are held in his hand. Those churches are sustained by him. Those churches are empowered by him. Jesus is the power source that allows that church to light up, right? And it says, he's walking among the lampstands and he's well acquainted with the lampstand in Ephesus. What's the lampstand? The church in Ephesus, right? And the church has the responsibility to light up it's got to be sourced, right? The spirit has to be the source of the power. The church is just holding the light. We can do a lot of things to mess it up and snuff it out. Jesus is tending the lampstand. Yeah, two sides, that sword cuts two ways, right? Here's the one way. There's great comfort in that. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He knows what's going on. He knows the details. And every one of the letters is going to support that. He knows what's going on. There's going to be a commendation and a correction. And then there's going to be a challenge in each of the letters. 
He knows what's going on. He's tending the lampstands. That's also convicting news, isn't it? He knows what's going on. He really knows what's going on. And as you read through the seven letters, you discover he knows all the details and he knows why what's going on is going on. Here's how he describes the good news of the church of Ephesus. And there are a number of good things, right? The, the address to Ephesus has lots of good news, good news, good news, and some bad news. So here's the good news. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for, hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Wouldn't you like that resume? Good works, hard work, perseverance, correct theology. Check, 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 check. Boy, they know what's going on, right? They better have those things, right? Paul was there for over three years, correct theology, he got that. Timothy was there leading, right? Allowing their good works to now be living out that theology in good works and in perseverance. They're able to understand the gospel so well, they, they understand error when it comes and they're able to stand against it. They're persevering in difficult times. They're experiencing persecution and they're standing strong. Good works, faithful persevering, correct theology. They've got it licked. Good news, good news, good news, good news. Yeah, but look at verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Yet I hold this against you. If you have an older translation, you may remember the words you have forsaken or lost your first love. Your first love. It's kind of scary, isn't it? But that affliction shouldn't sound so strange to us. Good works, hard work, correct theology, perseverance. Going through the motions pretending on the outside, but no, no heart, no passion, no energy on the inside. Does that sound familiar? How many of us grew up in Christian homes, right? You learned what the rules were. You learned the theology. You can recite the theology. Maybe you went to Christian school. You went to Sunday school. You know the right answers, and you know how to live in the lines. But boy, inside, your heart is far from the truth, isn't it? Kind of empty on the inside, but doing all the right stuff on the outside. And maybe church attendance is part of that good work on the outside, right? Going through the motions, pretending, externals, everything's good. Inside, rotten. Oh yeah, I think I remember Jesus using a metaphor, something like this to describe the Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside. Correct theology. Good works. Hard work. Perseverance. Correct theology. Dead on the inside. That's a, the church at Ephesus. Now, before we look at the remedy, look down at the end of the letter. 
And here's the uh, seriousness with which Jesus takes this. He says uh, in verse 5, If you do not repent, if you don't change and make this right, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now remember, the lampstand is the church. So he's not speaking to individual believers. He's not saying, now if you don't do this, I'm gonna, you're not going to be a Christian anymore. He's saying, no, I'll take your church out. This love thing is so important to me. If you just go through the motions, right, on the outside, you're pretending on the outside, no life on the inside, I'll take you out. And here's the sad reality. If you visited Ephesus today, you'll find a really neat theater that holds over a thousand people. You'll see the ruins of the Temple of Diana. And it's really, a lot of this stuff has been excavated. It's really awesome. And today in Ephesus, there is no Christian church. In fact, the whole part where these churches were delivered, that whole section of the world, is about 99% Muslim, less than 0.3% Christian. You think Jesus was playing? Good theology, correct theology, good works, hard work, perseverance. You're, you've got this thing. You've forsaken your first love? I'll take you out. Eternal life is promised to people that put their faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not promised to a local church. A local church only fulfills its purpose as love on the inside, the love of Jesus and the gospel rooted on the inside, lights up with the reality of the gospel and how they live to radiate from them. Well, what's the remedy? Hopefully by now I think, whoa, how do we fix this thing if we're kind of doing this? Well, here's the remedy. Verse 5, the remedy's all in one verse, nice, nice and easy. Consider how far you have fallen. I was thinking of that verse. Um, we gather together before the service, you know, the worship team, all the texts, we gather together. And uh, someone usually leads a little devotional. Andy led it this morning. And uh, here's what he said. Change always begins, transformation always begins with an acknowledgement and an admission that we got a problem. Consider, remember, reflect on how far you have fallen. Admit how far you have fallen. Acknowledge how far you have fallen. Maybe, uh, maybe I can ask this question. Remember what you felt like and what you acted like on your wedding day? Remember that? You were silly, right? You probably said silly things. You did silly things, right? You were doing crazy dances. You were like madly in love, right? I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Remember. Remember how you treated me, how you loved me at first? Remember? And consider how far you have fallen. It wasn't a burden then. It wasn't drudgery then. 
It wasn't going through the list and pretending on the outside. Those things were coming from, a, from the root of life and love on the inside. Remember how far you have fallen. Um, when we used to go, we don't go to malls anymore, right? We shop at home on the computer. But uh, I used to always think, when you walk through a mall, it's really easy to tell the couples that are dating from those that have been married for more than 10 years. Isn't that right? The couples that are dating can't keep their hands off each other, right? You think, you know, you need to get a room or something here, right? They're holding hands, they're hugging, they kiss in the aisle, they got their arms around. The couples that have been married for 10 years, the husband's over there, look at what he wants, the wife's over there doing what she wants. Rarely they come, hopefully they make it to the car to go home together, right? Um, remember how far you've fallen? Remember, acknowledge how different it is, right? Um, here's the reality. And uh, I sometimes uh, say this at wed- I had a wedding last week. I sometimes say this at weddings. You two stand before each other and before all your witnesses, and you're like madly in love right now. You have fallen in love with each other. That's great. But here's the reality. You may think I'm lying to you, but you, you call me up if you find out I'm lying. You're also going to fall out of love with each other. That'll happen. Has it happened with you and Jesus? And what do you do about it when you acknowledge how far you've fallen, you admit how far you've fallen, how far you've, from where you've been to where you are? Consider, remember, acknowledge that, admit it, right? Secondly, repent of that. Turn around. Um, right? Repentance means two things. You're going to turn from something into something. Turn from the things that have attracted you and turn back to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. He's not lacking anything that has caused you to turn away. You've turned away because you're led astray by other issues. Turn away from those things back to him. And when you do, you will discover that Jesus was right. Here's what he said. And sometimes uh, if you think about this, you may think he got it backwards, but he really didn't. Here's what he said. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You know when a couple stands uh, to get married? Do you know why they love each other so much and why they're acting so giddy and weird? Here's why. They have made enormous investments into each other. Time, energy, money, into each other. And their hearts have followed their treasure. The Bible doesn't say where your heart is there, your treasure. No, no, no. Your heart will follow your treasure, just like your 401k or the lack thereof, right? (laughs) Your relationship with Jesus is like a 401k. Your investment will determine what it's worth. Are you investing? Repent, turn from and turn to. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so I would say, make investments in your relationship with Jesus. Don't lose your first love. And when you make investments, like you did at first, when the church in Ephesus made investments, like they did in Acts 19, like they did when Paul was there for three years, like they did when Timothy was there pastoring, like they did when John was there. The people were making investments into the gospel, into Jesus, and their heart was right where their treasure was. But something happened. 
And he started making a lot of investment elsewhere. And just like in a marriage, once you get married, it's easy to start making investments in other things, right? Make investments in your job. You need to make investments in your job, but not at the sake of making investments in your spouse. Investments in your hobbies. Investment in things that attract you. And before you know it, your heart begins to be divided because your primary investment is being divided. Your heart will follow your treasure. Make investments. Make investments in the gospel, in Jesus. That's how we renew and remedy the problem of losing our first love. Now, just in case you thought this, Jesus isn't throwing something new to the church in Ephesus. He's not giving John something brand new. In fact, he's just repeating something he said a long time ago. He says it in Matthew 22 like this. One day Jesus is uh, teaching, and uh, somebody comes up to him and says, Jesus, you know, I read the Old Testament, all kinds of commands all over there, hundreds of commands. Which of the commands is most important? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, yeah, and the second's like it. Love your neighbors yourself. What is first love? Is it first love of Jesus? Yes. Is it first love of one another? I think it's yes. It's not an either or. The great command has two prongs, but it's one command. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Make investments in the right place. And you'll discover you won't be going through the motions. The motions will be driven by a power source on the inside when you recognize your lack, but the power, the love, the grace, and the mercy that comes through Jesus to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter to the church in Ephesus, but yet, Lord, a church that in a lot of ways sounds just like us. Lord, we're not sure what the letter from Jesus to the church in, at Calvary and Saturn would be. But Lord, I suspect there would be some things in it about losing the center, making right investments again. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to do that. And as we make investments in the right place, the wonder, glory, grace, mercy in Jesus will ignite us again and our lights will shine brighter in the future they never, ever have in the past. Thanks for that privilege and responsibility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.